the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today. Welcome to the Bullington Capital Report, hosted by Bill Bullington. For the next hour, you'll receive information on current market conditions and trends that could affect your financial future. If you have a question, you can participate in today's program by calling 216-901-0945. That's 216-901-0WHK. You can also reach Bill by going to his website, BullingtonCapital.com. And now, here's Bill Bullington. Well, welcome back. Been a uh, interesting few days. Yeah, a lot of stuff going on politically. That's uh, kind of interesting. Yeah, be really, be really fascinating to see what's ha- what happens on uh, this next election. I mean, just fascinating. There are so many things up in the air, and I don't have a guess. By the way, I've learned not to do that a long time ago. In fact, I don't guess at just about anything. I don't guess at the stock market. I mean, it's not a guess. You know, you're uh, this, that, this is one of the big things we'll be talking about at the seminar on Thursday. Is uh, don't guess. <laughs> You know, bottom line is come kind of come in with a plan. You know, if uh, you have a fairly decent plan, doesn't have to be the best. Just got to be decent. If you stick to a decent plan, you'll generally do very well. You know, you'll you'll outperform a lot of people who uh, come in without a plan, and you don't have to be perfect either. That's that's the other thing uh, in investing. Being perfect oftentimes is the enemy of of being profitable. And first of all, it's going to be impossible to be perfect anyway, but trying to do so can really hurt uh, your, your long-term returns. And when you buy some stuff that doesn't work out right away, if it's got good, solid fundamentals to it, you might want to just hang in there. What do I mean by fundamentals? I mean, you know, things like sales, profits, um, valuations that aren't too high. I, I bought a bunch of calculators, by the way. They're supposed to be delivered on Tuesday. We're going to be giving out the calculators to show you what I refer to as the 60-second test. And the 60-second test is a little test you can do. I'm going to show you how to find the information online to evaluate a stock just to give you like a, a bird's-eye view, an overview of whether or not that stock may or may not be overpriced. Why would you want to know that? Well, if you're going to invest in a stock, you don't want to, you want to avoid the stocks that are overpriced. Uh, investing in stocks is hard enough. <laughs> you don't want to be overpaying for stuff because it may be decades before you see a decent profit when you do that. So if you can get that done in about 60 seconds or less, that would really help. And it'll really help when you go back to look at your own investments. And I've got investments. You can look up the holdings in those investments now, now that everybody's got the internet and you can see how much risk those portfolio managers are taking. And that's a big deal. Managing the risk is, is kind of key, and uh, we'll be talking about that too. Also, the risk of investing during a recession. If, if a recession's actually on its way, by the way, the latest economic statistics turned back up again. 
So they had slowed down a little bit. And then the, uh, over the past couple of weeks, the economic indicators that came out showed a, a slight improvement again. So, you know, and that's one of, the, one of the things that's very difficult about uh, predicting recessions. It's kind of like predicting the exact day that you're going to get the first snow in winter. Very hard to do, especially in Ohio. But if you were instead saying you, know, you were preparing for that snow and you got, a, you got your snow boots, you got your jacket in the closet, gloves, the hat, and you're ready, the, the smart thing to do is take a look outside, you know, look out the window. <laughs> if you see snow on the ground, put your snow boots on, get your hat, your gloves. And uh, that's, that's what we're really talking about. How do you do that with a uh, portfolio? How do you create an, uh, a portfolio that's kind of all weather to begin with? Got your hat, got your boots, got your, got your coat. When do you know to put them on? And the actual the answer for the stock market is like always. <laughs> you always want to be carrying some cash. You always want to be carrying some shorter term bonds. Those are like the uh, your coat and your your cap and your boots. So when uh, winter hits the stock market, that's also known as a recession, and uh, stock prices have a tendency to go down fairly significantly. The uh, you'll be ready. You know you'll be ready for it. So you're going to be expecting it. I'm going to show you how to do that uh, very simply. And, and I have really, the rest of my career, this is a uh, kind of a, a vow I took just to myself. The rest of my career, I'm going to try to teach things so that your average 10 or 12-year-old can understand it. Uh, why am I doing that? Well, you should probably show your 10 and 12-year-old this stuff when they're about 12 years old at a maximum. And hopefully, you know, they're not one of those kids that grow up early like they wrote this kid that i grew up with when he was 12 he had to shave <laughs> kid was huge <laughs> and uh his hormones had already kicked in too late can't talk to kids when their hormone hormones kick in you know what i'm talking about if you're a parent those hormones kick in you're not going to be able to talk to them till they're 30 <laughs> if you can talk to them then but uh, you want to get them uh in tuned to investing and and this is another thing that I decided I would talk about just about every show is let's teach the kids. Let's teach the kids the 60-second test. So how do you learn the 60-second test? Well, you go to the seminar, you learn how to do it, and then you turn around and, and teach the kids. And I ordered a bunch of little calculators, by the way. They're not the real fancy kind. They're very, they're very basic. But everybody that comes is going to get the calculator because I'm going to show you how to do that 60-second test, that thing I've been talking about. And basically just doing an evaluation on a company to see whether or not you want to continue to do some research on it. And that, that's a big deal, by the way. In fact, you could actually stop at the 60-second test if uh, under certain conditions, that's all you need. Under certain conditions, that 60-second test is as good as a 15-page analyst report under certain conditions. Under a lot of conditions, not so much. But actually, probably about, mm, I'd say, 8 out of 10 times. You're looking at a company. The stuff that you're going to be looking at uh, that's going to be the most important is covered in the 60-second test. We're looking at sales, profit margins, uh, companies in the industry, and I'm going to show you how to apply that to come up with an, an estimate of what a normal price normal price range for that stock might be. And so why would you, you know, why does this help? First of all, when you're, you're thinking about a stock, and by the way, if you, you have a stock you'd like me to look at, 
Uh, you can always call us today. The, the number here at the station is 2, 216-901-0945, 216-901-0945. And feel free to call. I, uh, occasionally I'll, I'll look up some of the, uh, stocks that you're looking at and want to do the 60 second test. I can, I've done it so many times. I can actually do it in my head now. And, uh, that's not, that has nothing, no great shakes, by the way. If you, if you'd done this as many times as I did, you would probably got it done in half the time. <laughs> the, uh, it's just not that hard. It's, it's a lot of time, effort, uh, experience. Um, that part, you know, I can't really give you that. And I am having a really tough time here connecting to the internet. So maybe during the commercial break, I'll try to get up on the internet so I can, uh, give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. And why would you need to know this? And why would you want to tweet, uh, teach a 12 year old? Well, a 12 year old, you know, the kids today, let, let, let's, let's take today, first of all. So BlackRock, largest asset manager on the planet. They're actually bigger than Fidelity now. I think it's roughly somewhere between five and six trillion dollars in assets. By the way, a trillion is a thousand billion. <laughs> so when you're at five trillion in assets, that's five thousand billion. <laughs> and a billion is a thousand million. Think about that. That is mind-boggling that they're doing that much money. And they didn't get that big by accident. They're actually pretty good at what they do. They're world's largest asset managers. They, they consult with all kinds of huge financial firms. One of the reasons I like to refer to people like that is because they can actually affect markets, and they do. They affect the market. When they create a product, it's actually going to have an impact on the market that it goes into. And uh, so I like to hear what they're saying because they give you an they, they'll give you a heads up. Hey, this is what we're doing. You're like, oh. Occasionally, you know, some of the ideas that come up uh, were not as um, not as attractive, I guess, as, as some others. They've got different types of objectives, you know, and uh, so we want to pay attention to that too. But when BlackRock says, "Hey, look, you should probably only think about taking out about four and a half percent from a portfolio when you're retired." Because that's the starting value. You're going to raise that over time to keep up with inflation. So it's going to start at 4%. And then if you invest well, you should be able to raise that each year to keep up with inflation. So if 4%, or 4.5% rather, is the number, now all you have to do is divide the income you'd like to have in retirement by 4.5%. Actually, that's if you were going to rely exclusively just on your savings, which almost nobody does, by the way. Most people have Social Security or some sort of a pension, and that does reduce significantly the amount of money that you have to save personally. That, that reduces an amazing amount. So let, let's take an example here. Let's look at somebody that says, well, you know, I think I could get by on, on 5000 a month after taxes. All right, so $5,000 a month after taxes. By the way, I am just pulling this out of thin air. I probably should have started my calculator up before I did this. Five thousand dollars a month after taxes. Five thousand. Let's just assume your uh, your taxes, all your taxes, are right around twenty percent because you're retired now. So five thousand equals eighty percent of sixty-two fifty. Six thousand two hundred fifty dollars. You pay twelve hundred fifty dollars in taxes. You have five thousand dollars left. You think you can get by on that in retirement? Uh, and you're not going to count Social Security at this point. I'll go back and do that a little bit later. But the uh, uh, so we're just not we're just going to rely on our on our savings. So that means 
6250 times 12 is 75,000. And 75,000 is 4.5% of 1.66 million, 1.67 million. So to get to 1.6 million, you can and you can get by on the uh, $72,000 before taxes. You're good. So that's your number today. Now, at inflation, the current inflation rates, the ones that they've been talking about, in 20 years, that'll be about 50 or 60% higher. In 40 years, it'll be at least double. This is why I'm saying, you want to teach the 12-year-olds this now. Think about that for a second. A 12-year-old, he's got 50 years. He's not going to need 1.6 million. He's not going to need uh, 3.2 million. He's going to need about 4.6. 4.6 million dollars. That is amazing. That's the bad news. The good news is they're 12 years old. <laughs> and, you know, as much as that sounds, it's still a doable number. It's about as hard as somebody accumulating 1.6 million is today. Now, let me uh, back that 1.6 million out there. So what do we say? 5,000 after taxes. Let's say you got 1,500 bucks from Social Security. Okay, So if you needed $5,000 a month after taxes, that's actually roughly $6,000 before taxes. And you get $1,500 from Social Security each month. That drops that down to 4,500. And so that means... Because of Social Security, you only need a million dollars. I know a lot of people are, whoa, a million? Yeah, yeah. But think about this for a second. We just went from 1.6 million down to a million because of Social Security. And I did not use a real high number for the Social Security. It's 1500 bucks a month. I think the nationwide average is somewhere between 12 and 1400 a month from Social Security. So, that just saved, that just knocked off $600,000 that you would have to save on your own. Woohoo! That's, that's pretty awesome. I don't think a lot of people understand that concept. <laughs> that Social Security payment is a big deal. So if you have a pension, that's a big deal. And you're a, a school teacher, work for the federal government, you work for any type of government and and I would encourage people to if you know if they don't want to go into business for themselves uh or don't want to be a a doctor or somebody who has to go to a lot of schooling uh, going to have to pay a lot of money but to make the above average income I'd say try to get a, a job that's got a pension because they contribute a, an enormous amount of money to those pensions the average school teacher has somewhere around 27 28% of their gross pay going into their STRS. I don't. I don't know how many of them are actually aware of that, but that, that's what the number comes out to. So it's it's enormous, and that's one of the reasons that you know a lot of teachers have. They quite frankly they have a really good retirement. That's a really good retirement pro- program. A lot of uh, federal employees, government employees, people in the military. It takes millions of dollars to replace the income that they're going to get on a pension. And, you know, I think when kids are right around 12 years old, especially today, the 12-year-olds are really smart. They get it. You know, show them that number. Say, hey, 12 years old, you're going to need to accumulate somewhere around, somewhere between 4 and $5 million by the time you're 65 to be able to retire today with a, an income that would be the equivalent of $5,000 a month. <laughs> now, they might not know what that is. So, uh 
But just hearing it at that age, if, you know, I had a paper route at that age. And it was nice. Yeah, but you were in business for yourself. I, I really liked it. I kind of enjoyed the experience. And I know if somebody had told me, I would have started, I would have started buying stocks when I was 12. I know I would have. Yeah, I would have had to get a you know miner's account, but I would have started doing that. Uh, and I, I was so curious. So I, one day I was walking through one of the hallways of the apartment buildings where I was delivering the papers, and I, I found a piece of paper, and it was actually a uh, a stub that came from a dividend uh, or a, that was coming from I think it was Exxon Mobil. And so I read the address and the name on it, and I went, "Huh, it was a kid that I knew." I was like, "Huh." He had a stock. So I knocked on the door, and when his mom answered the door, I said, hey, I found this in the hallway. It must have fallen out of the mail. And uh, she goes, oh, well, thank you. I go, just out, of, just out of curiosity. Okay, I'm 12. Just out of curiosity, how did, how was he allowed to buy stock? <laughs> and the uh, mother said, oh, his, his father put that in his name for him. Like, oh. And by the way, that was uh, attached to that stub was a actually a dividend check, which I thought was super cool. <laughs> He's getting paid. Yeah. So anyway, but nobody ever talked to me about it again. I just kind of forgot it. You know, that's the way 12 year olds are. But I think if you sat down with your 12 year olds, you know, their your grandkids and started showing them this stuff and started showing them how the stock market actually works, that, that it fluctuates a lot. And that's what you know, the kind of price you have to pay to be able to make the above average returns. You just have to be willing to tolerate the fluctuation without panicking. Now, that's another big part of what we're going to be talking about in the seminar. How do you how do you calm yourself down? How do you talk yourself down off the ledge, so to speak? Now, to hear the music, I'm going to take a real quick commercial break. This is Bill Bullington right here on 1420 The Answer. I'll be right back. And we're back. Hey, did you know that you can also pick up this show now on 102.5 in the greater Cleveland area? Andy, how does, it, does that signal come in pretty good? It's a limited reach, but yeah, it's it's pretty good signal. Okay, cool. So I'm going to try that on my way home. The uh, 102.5 is uh, an FM frequency that this show is also carried on. By the way, you can also hear it on the Fish's website, 955thefish.com. They carry it as a podcast. And you can go to my website, bullingtoncapital.com, and you can download it there or listen to it anytime you want. Uh, and uh, you can also sign up for the seminar we have coming up on this Thursday. And the Thursday, uh, it's going to be 630 Tri-C's Corporate College. It's a really beautiful facility. Um, should be a lot of fun. There's no cost to attend. Seating is limited. Um, it's only, and we've got a lot of seats left though. This, uh, this is getting to the time of year where, uh, everything starts to slow down, thankfully, <laughs> because it has been brutal. <laughs> the requests for services, uh, have been, um, pretty intense this year. A lot of changes with the tax code and all that stuff. Anyway, so the seminar topic is, is a recession coming and how could that affect your investments? And we're going to talk about the things that typically do better 
or you know have better relative performance, I should say, in a recessionary environment. And um, how, what kind of bonds that you might want to be holding in that particular environment. Bonds should be a core holding in almost everybody's accounts, uh, not because they make a lot of money, but they keep the volatility down pretty significantly. Because getting the right types of bond funds, now some bond funds, incidentally, are as volatile as stocks are. And you get the wrong type of bond fund in there, then that ain't good. You know, you're, gonna, you're expecting safety, and then you're getting big drops when the market goes down. And uh, that's not good. So you want to be really careful with that. And we'll take a look at some of the uh, bond funds that I'm using now, uh, why we're using them, when we might begin to shift that a little bit. I think it's a little bit uh, early now to be shifting. Uh, but at some point in time, there will it's going to make sense to shift the allocation to the bonds. Right now, we're holding some uh, really short-term treasuries for a big chunk of the money. We're holding some uh, mortgage-backed securities. And we're also holding a little bit of high yields. So there are different types in each one of those categories that we're holding. Uh, and those things don't fluctuate a whole lot. Uh, but that's not what they're there for. They're there to give the portfolio some stability. It still fluctuates a lot because stocks fluctuate like crazy. And it's interesting that a lot of people think that stock market is more volatile today than it, than it was you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Reality, it was, it was a lot more volatile in the early 1900s and late 1800s than it is today. And it was really volatile in the 1920s. And that was a, a big time period for the stock market. It did very well. And then in the 30s, of course, you had the Depression. That really hurt a lot of stock investors for a while. But, you know, if they hung in there, they, most of them did pretty well eventually. I remember a Warren Buffett's graduate school teacher and first employer his name was, uh, Alan, I was going to say Alan Greenspan. He looked like Greenspan. Ben Graham. Ben Graham was running a fund and had a huge decline in that fund, ended up making it all back. And by the time he retired in the early 1950s, his lifetime track record was in the low teens. What, that for a second? That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, I read that uh, online, and it was actually a... a interview of Warren Buffett. So I can't tell you, I can't verify that to say that, yes, this is absolutely the truth because, you know, I read it and I just assume that, uh, you know, the reporters reporting accurately and, and his Warren Buffett's memory was intact at that time. It's still intact. If you watch what he's talking about on television, you can see that guy's really lucid and he's, he's like 87, 88, somewhere on there. The, uh, it's a great shape, man. Hope my brain works like that when I'm that age. So anyway, those guys were doing the same kind of stuff that we're talking about now. Ben Grant's big book, The Security Analysis, that used to be like the Bible for all value investors. And I'm sure some people are still using it because the basic tenets are still the same. Just like the 60-second test, that's actually a derivative of what he was talking about in his books. I just simplified it and brought it up to modern-day language. Uh, I'm looking at the things that really drive a company's value over time. And again, the reason to learn how to do this is so that you don't have to. Uh, when you get really good at it, you'll pull up a fund. You'll pull up recommendations that you're getting from somebody 
and a financial advisor, and you'll be able to look into it and say, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I, I see why they're saying that. Or, you know, occasionally you may know more than your <laughs> financial advisor. Hopefully not. But, the uh, you know, when they're new, it, it takes a long time to get your arms around the whole thing. There's an awful lot of information. Uh, and, by the way, when you're working for the, the big firms, oftentimes they just uh, will tell you, hey, look, don't worry about it. We'll tell you what to say. <laughs> Yeah, I never, that never sat well with me. I, I was like, nah, well, God really like to know. So you end up having to do a lot of your own homework. And uh, it's pretty cool. They, now that you have the internet, I'm so jealous of these kids. They can, You can look up anything. Now, whether it's true or not, <laughs> you don't really know. So you want to verify the sources. But, you know, I had to go down to the library to look this stuff up. Library. And the, the library around this area that had the most information for financial stuff was the Cleveland Public Library downtown. So I'd spent a lot of time down there. And then actually in Parma, uh, they actually had a subscription to Standard & Poor's. Uh, it's called tear sheets, mainly because people used to tear them out of the book that used to make me so mad. They would tear it out and send copies of it to their clients. And now you don't have another copy until they update it again in the next quarter. And uh, anyway... So, but they would have these tear sheets on every company that they followed, and there were several thousand of them, and it looked like an encyclopedia set. So, if you wanted to find out up to date information on some of the companies that was considered up to date, uh, was at least based on the last quarter. And uh, just keeping that thing, by the way, organized was almost a full time job for whoever was working there because there were so many companies and so many reports to have to file, and you got to get rid of the old one, put the new one in. Anyway, it was a lot more work than it is today, like a lot more work. So today you can find that information pretty quickly. If you know how to interpret it, all the better. Uh, I don't think you have to be an expert at reading financial statements to be a good investor. I think if you are an expert, there's actually pros and cons to that. Uh, some of the pros are, hey, you'll probably identify some things that other people are going to miss. The cons are you're going to spend a lot more time looking at stuff and may not be able to get to a lot of the better stuff because of the amount of time it takes to go in-depth on each and every company. That's the, that was the whole idea behind the 60-second test, by the way. Do I really want to learn? Let's say, you know, I'm, I, I like this company called Discover Financial Services. You've heard me talk about it here, and, and some people have it uh, that uh, we've, over the years, um, it's not a recommendation. I'm not allowed to do that. The uh, Right now, it's like uh, 81 bucks. It's right around, let's see, nah, it's actually slightly lower than uh, it normally should be. So, you know on Thursday, I'll do that one for everybody. I'll do the Discover Financial Services. I'll do the 60-second test and show you what I'm talking about. So it's a credit card company. And uh, there are very important things about that. Um, number one is that the business is relatively simple. And this, when the business is simple, the simpler the business is, the easier it is to uh, make forecasts. If the business is not simple, you could look at a lot of companies that have six, seven divisions that are not related to one another. That's tough. That's really tough. And, uh, you know, how do you, you know, I, I feel so bad for people when they call and ask about GE because so many people worked for GE Lighting in this area for so many years or they had a couple of facilities where they did semiconductors, uh, component manufacturing, I think, the uh, different divisions of GE that nobody even knew about. And they got a whole bunch of GE stock. And in the, in the 80s, that stock just roared. It, it ripped. 
Well, it peaked in 1998, and it is significantly below where it was in 1998. Think about that for a second. What what year is it? Yeah, yeah, and that's what I'm talking about. For a long time, that company did very well. I mean, extremely well. In fact, I've got a little chart here. I'm going to go back up in the, uh, yeah, it was in the 50s, like 60 bucks, right around the year 2000. It's at $9.57. That hasn't split. That's its share price. <laughs> and if you had talked to people about it, and I did, I used to talk to them all the time, and they'd always call in, oh, GE, GE, because during the 1980s and, and 90s and the uh, all the way up through 2000, now, that stock did nothing but go higher. There were a bunch of people that on paper, they were just multimillionaires. I mean, multimillionaires. And now here you are, 19 years later, and it's worth a fraction of what it was selling for back in the uh, year 2000. Actually, I think it, yeah. Yeah, back in the year 2000. That thing, according to, uh, you know what, I'm going to pull this up on a different software package because... I don't trust that. <laughs> yeah, it was year 2000. So year 2000, it peaked up $56 in 38 cents. Or I'm sorry, the high was $58.41. 5841. It's at 957. They haven't split the stock. Here's my point. What I started off talking about to begin with. GE is a great company, no doubt. They've got so many divisions that have nothing to do with the other division, that's what my, my theory is. It's incredibly difficult to keep a good eye on businesses that are so diverse. When you're making MRI machines and jet engines and locomotives and light bulbs, um, yeah, those are all. <laughs> Peter Lynch once wrote about that. He called it diversification. And for a long time, uh, GE Finance, by the way, was a big part of the reason that that stock had done so well because it had grown substantially. And uh, now it's actually out on its own. It's, it's actually struggled for uh, quite a bit too. But the uh, uh, anyway, bottom line is if you don't understand what a business is doing or you're looking at the businesses and they are super diverse, they don't have a lot uh, of things in common with the other businesses, you know, in my book, that's, that's kind of a negative. It's kind of a negative because it's really difficult to find people who are talented in those areas and who knows a lot about all those industries. And the more industries that you try to get into, the more complicated it becomes, the more the chances are that, that somebody slips up somewhere. So, but that's just, that's just me. You know, you don't have to listen to me. On the other hand, you look at a a company like um, a credit card company. And I don't like all the credit card companies because a lot of them are, are uh, overvalued, in my opinion. And I'll show you on the 60-second test. In fact, we'll do that just on, this, on the credit card companies. And you'll see exactly why I'm talking about that. But the, the businesses themselves are very good. I mean, they're in the money business. Their product is money. And who doesn't want money? Everybody has mo- wants money. They need money. They need money to live. When they come up short... You know, that's when they can use a credit card and kind of you know, tie themselves over until they get the money to pay that credit card off, which you should do as quickly as humanly possible <laughs> with the interest rates that they charge. And it's, those are really good businesses. Those are really good businesses. And it's not like anybody's going to stop using money. 
But I can tell you a semiconductor is going to change. That's a, it's a tougher business. Semiconductors are tougher. Uh, jet engines, they're changing constantly. The jet engines they have today are a lot more efficient than the ones that were out 10 years ago. You know how much it costs to develop a new jet engine? It's a lot of dough. So you're constantly going through a process of uh, creative destruction. You're, you're destroying the old model with a new, improved, better model that takes billions of dollars in research and development to get to the market. To get to the market with money, all you have to do is tell people, hey, I got money. <laughs> you want to borrow some? And uh, you know, you're swamped. But you have to be careful who you lend to. You know, make sure they try to pay you back. And that's the risk, you know, of credit card company. And a lot of people let that risk scare them out of the industry. You'd rather buy a, a company that makes jet engines. I'm just kidding. The um, all businesses have a lot of risk to them. They do, but some businesses are just inherently more risky than others. Some businesses are just harder to come up with an estimate of what it should actually sell for because they do so many different things. That's a tough one. That's like well, one of my other favorite stocks is actually Procter & Gamble. And you look at all the products that they make, and most of them are not uh, closely related other than the fact that they're relatively inexpensive and people buy a lot of them. People buy a lot of toothpaste. You know, they buy a lot of cleaning products. They buy a lot of laundry detergent. And that's what Procter & Gamble makes. But, you know, each one of those products is a little bit different. Uh, they're going countries all over the world for growth. It's a, uh, but you know, it's a, uh, they've got a, a very nice process. If you read about how they go about developing that, uh, which I've done and incidentally that people are all upset at Jeffrey Imel, you know, saying you didn't do that good of a job at, at GE. Um, you know, I gotta tell you a CEO of a company like that is kind of like a quarterback and a professional football team. The quarterback is only as good as the offensive lineman and, a CEO is only as good as the underlying industries that his business is, uh, that his business is invested in or is participating in. And sometimes you need to make trades. You know, and sometimes it doesn't always work out. But the harder or the more businesses that you're in and the more separated those businesses are from one another, the more difficult it is to run a company like that. I hear the music. That means we got to take a real quick commercial break. You're listening to Bill Bullington right here on 1420 The Answer. Stay tuned. Hey, I gotta go to the phones. If you'd like to call in with a question, 216-901-0945, 216-901-0945. And I got Walter. You have a question for me? Yeah, Bill. Um, I'm gonna talk about Warren Buffett and uh, credit card companies, and yeah. you know, I hear you talk about them today. Yeah. Um, uh, thing about the credit card companies, you're right. I mean, the price of Visa and Mastercard is sky high. Uh, but uh, as Barron's called them, I was looking at the market share uh, a couple of days ago. Oh yeah, it's huge. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, leads the world sixty percent market share in credit and debit cards. Yep, followed by Mastercard twenty five percent, American Express thirteen, and Discover two. Right. 
yeah. mean, it's so here, dominate here, the market. Yeah, and here's the thing. Uh, the price-to-sales ratio reflects that on uh, Visa and MasterCard. It sells at 17 times their annual revenue, not not their profit, times the revenue, and almost 18 times. That's a lot. And most stocks you know, will come down 40 or 50% every other year or so anyway. That's just how they work. And stocks like that, if, if they really, if they have a hard time, if they go through a period of, I don't know, nine months or 12 months, th- those stocks could really get rocked. Because that's, that is just a huge valuation. A company with $21 billion in revenue selling for $370 billion? I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's just, that's rough. That's really rough. So I think you're, you're probably better off. Uh, that's why I have the, uh, the one with only 2% market share. By the way, which one do you think is easier to take market share away from, the, the 800-pound gorilla or the, uh, the small up-and-coming one? Probably the small up-and-coming one. Right, yeah. But the 800-pound gorilla is pretty strong. Oh, you know? they're super strong. And, and by the way, everybody that's invested in those things, they feel about those stocks like they felt about GE in the late 90s. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, rightly so, I guess, from the track record. But when you look at the amount of risk that you're taking... You know, if I looked in a mutual fund and I saw that those were the biggest positions in a mutual fund, I'd be like, "Uh oh." <laughs> yeah. I I just want to avoid the uh, I just want to avoid the high risk stuff. It's hard enough. I mean, it's really hard. Sometimes you buy stuff that's got low risk in it, and next thing you know, it's cut in half. You know, uh, that's going to happen to you no matter what you do. But the uh, but uh, staying away from the stuff that's selling at just a really really high uh, valuations are you know. That, that's just what I like to do. So the price-to-earnings ratio on uh, Visa, by the way, is 35. So that's 35. It's basically 35 years worth of their earnings you're paying for the stock at this price. And it hit a new 52-week high just recently. Um, another thing about, um, I have a friend who gave me an annual report of um, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, two, uh, 2017. Right. So it's not the recent one. Right. But I was reading through it, and he talked about the bet he made with the hedge fund uh, manager, Protege. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Buffett won the bet. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, and uh, he was talking about it at length. And uh, the bet was he didn't bet just one hedge fund. He bet hundreds of uh, fund, five fund of funds that had hundred, uh, hundreds of hedge fund managers, at least 200, with well, a bunch you, of, you know, not right. just one. Which is even harder, by the way, because now you're you're spreading out the investments over a large pool of investments and the only way to really, if you're going to beat an index, you're going to have to concentrate your holdings. And it, it's almost impossible to do that if you're holding three or 400 securities. And, and the number of securities in those hedge funds was in the thousands. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was you know, an incredible thing. But he came to the conclusion, you know, Buffett writes about this, why the hedge funds couldn't beat the S&P 500. And he said the first one, state the obvious, the fees are too high. Mm-hmm. He says that uh, when you have fund of funds, not only do you have a main fee, but right. then the uh, underlying managers have sure. fees. Yeah. And it's, then they have performance fees if they do good for a year right. or two. Yeah, I know. It, it's incredibly difficult to make money with those things. Um, and what cracks me up is you have to be an accredited investor to be allowed to invest in those, <laughs> and uh, which is a good thing because that means you know, you've got at least a million dollars in financial assets uh, yeah. or, or your income's real high. So they're not really that worried about making tons of money on their on their money uh it would be interesting to see what their 
volatilities are because that's that's actually the main reason you use a hedge fund uh, or especially a fund of funds. You're trying to keep your volatility down. They're not necessarily looking for the highest returns. They're looking for a decent return without having to take on too much risk. And so that's what I would like to see. I'd like to see the up there. They call it upside downside capture ratios. The uh, That's what I'd like to see of those funds. It It may be worth a lower return if you're not very volatile. The uh, But if you're putting up with the same volatility that the S&P is getting and you're getting lower returns, then that's that's not good. But uh, but anyway, yeah, there's always a ton of uh, really interesting stuff out there, isn't there? <laughs> oh, yeah. He makes the comment, though, uh, when he dealt with the hedge funds, mm-hmm. he said that in his professional career as a financial manager, right. that he only knows of 10 people in his career that he feels could beat the S&P 500 over decades. Over decades, yeah. 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 You think that you agree with that? Uh, yeah. And I think one of the easier ways is to go down a little bit in size. If you look at like the, uh, Russell mid cap and small cap indexes, they have better long-term track records, but they're indexes, you know, they're just a different type of an index. And the volatility though is actually higher on those than the volatility of the S and P 500, which is hard to imagine when you see how the S and P bounces around, but the, uh, it's a little bit uh, different and they don't put in the performance at the same exact time. In fact, I have a model that uses one value-oriented uh, ETF that's in mid-cap, and it uses one growth. And over the past five years, the S&P's blown away almost everything, by the way. The, uh, and this has actually kept up with that and even done a little bit better, depending on what kind of management fee you paid for it. Uh, if you did it yourself, you actually uh, beat the S&P. And you know, less than one in 20 professionals can say that. So it's it's about knowing, you know, the S&P is not the the BLN. It's it's actually when you're Warren Buffett wealthy, if you got a billion dollars to invest, you probably don't have a choice. The uh because you'll move those stocks around in those smaller categories. Uh that that typically is not the problem of the average investor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, if you look at Warren Buffett's stocks that he, you know, his company has picked, they've they haven't done that well. Um in fact his No, no. You're right. He slowed. He's even missed. He says uh, the bigger you get, the slower you get. Yes, it gets hard. It gets really hard. So the small investor actually has two advantages today. First of all, you can actually get access to those types of indexes. Those are not that old. Most of them are less than a decade old. And you can get access to that now. And I'm actually going to show these illustrations at my seminar, by the way. And if you want to call me, I'll send them to you. Um, one last thing. He said that... Um the trouble with uh, investing, like investment managers, like right. mutual funds and hedge funds, sure. he says if they do do well for a while, right. he says it's like the worst thing in the yep. world. Because yeah, the assets come pouring in. in <laughs> yeah. And think, it, it acts right. as an anchor to performance. Exactly. Yep. And he should know because he was a hedge fund manager. The Buffett Partnership is how he got started. <laughs> and he turned the Buffett Partnership into Berkshire Hathaway. And Berkshire Hathaway, by the way, was a company he bought for less than their net current asset value, meaning less than the uh, liquidation value. He had to shut it down. <laughs> and uh, it's just a fascinating story. I mean, it, it, you know, he was very capable. At the time that he was doing that, by the way, there were a lot of fund managers that had better track records than the S&P 500 uh, because it was easier. Only 15% of institutions even bothered to invest in stocks. They were buying bonds that were paying 7 or 8% interest, and then the interest rate went up to 15%. Why would you buy stock? <laughs> right, right. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. But, hey, Walt, thanks for uh, – you got a lot of good information. I really appreciate the call. Thanks a lot. Yep, have a good day.
You too. Bye-bye. Adam, you're on the Bullington Capital Report. Good morning, Bill. Hey. I have a question, quick question about MKSI. Yeah. MKS Instruments. And you mentioned it a couple weeks ago, and they actually report their earnings sometime this week. Do you have any thoughts on that company? On what the earnings? I, I, I wouldn't know what the earnings would be. Uh, I can tell you that the sector, the reason that it, it came up was I was looking at the um, the sector itself. And, you know, there's this thing called 5G. Uh, MKS Instruments makes a lot of the uh, equipment that's used in the manufacturer of the chips, the 5G chips. And uh, so, but that goes for all this. In fact, I, I don't think, you know, doing a stock, individual stock like that, I don't think that's that good of an idea uh, unless you are, unless it's part of a uh, program that you're running with multiple stocks in it. So I put together a model of ETFs that invest in semiconductors differently because the, like the socks, the Philadelphia socks, that's what most people look at when they say it, it's, it's market cap weighted. It's got a ton of money in the top three stocks and not a whole lot of money in a lot of the stocks that go below that. Um, so that made me a little nervous because you're over concentrating. If the top stocks don't do very well, then the entire fund's not going to do that well. So anyway, I, I put together this little model and again, feel free, uh, to call my office. I can send it to you if we have a conversation. If you say, Hey, I'd really like to have that. I can say, okay, because I don't have a license to send it out to everybody. <laughs> so, uh, but, but yeah, that, that would be a pretty good one. Hey, thanks Adam. For my call. Oh, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Can't believe the show's over. Hey, you've been listening to Bill Bullington every here. I'm here every Saturday morning from 11 to noon on 1420. The answer also carries a podcast on the fish 955thefish.com. Have a good week, everybody. Good luck and good investing. You just caught another edition of the Bullington Capital Report, broadcasting every Saturday at 11 a.m. on AM 1420. The answer. If you have a question and you'd like to speak to Bill personally, you can call him at 330-664-0700. That's 330-664-0700. Or online at BullingtonCapital.com. That's BullingtonCapital.com. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Therefore, no current or prospective client should assume that the future performance of any specific investment, investment strategy, including the investments and or investment strategies recommended and or purchased by advisor or product made reference to directly or indirectly will be profitable. Different types of investment involve varying degrees of risk and there can be no assurance that any specific investment will either be suitable or profitable for a client's investment portfolio. No client or prospective client should assume that any information presented serves as the receipt of or substitute for personalized investment advice from the advisor or any other investment professional. The preceding program has been paid for by Bullington Capital Management, LLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.